Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Every generation goes through some form of change, reform, or even deconstruction. I believe it's part of growing and evolving and developing and maturing. And it's this process where we shift from going from that's what my parents told me to kind of this, this is what I, I believe. And I'm going to share a bit of my story with you. But I believe it's important, even for those of us who have a parental role in a child's life, to wrestle with this. Because our job isn't just to tell them what to believe, but to give our children the proper tools to know how to discern and to grow and to think for themselves at age-appropriate times. So if you haven't already, I will just drop another uh, bug in your ear. Sign up for the parenting course. That's the desire of this course, that uh, we'll be working at developing the tools to walk with our children, to raise them up to know, love, and serve Jesus, and help them own their faith. So let me share with you a bit of my experience from shifting from what I was told to believe to actually making it my own. So I first went off to Bible college in 2002. And it's mainly because I thought I would go into business accounting and I passed all my courses except accounting. And I thought, okay, well, what should I do with this information? And a bunch of my friends were going to Bible school and I thought, well, a one-year Bible certificate wouldn't hurt. And I kind of had the sense that youth ministry might be an avenue that I would kind of check out and explore while I was there. But I didn't have a great experience. The Bible college I went to wrecked me. It was my first time away from home. I lived in dorm, saw a lot of the hypocrisy of of these people who wanted to become pastors. And again, it was this sense of they were telling us what to believe and how to defend it, but they weren't giving us the why. They weren't giving us the tools to make it our own. And at the end of that one year, I left Bible college and the church and my faith and Jesus. And I checked it at the door because I wanted nothing to do with it for the next four years. But after encountering Jesus on New Year's Day, bringing in 2007, I was forever changed. And I knew at that moment that God had been calling me into ministry earlier, but I was running from it. I knew that I needed to grow in my understanding of scripture and of who God is. So I sold everything that I had here in Hamilton, and I enrolled in the Christianity and Culture program at Trinity Western uh, University at the age of 25. And I had a great experience there, but I'll admit one of their flaws and shortcomings. They were great at deconstructing. Man, they could just rip apart all these beliefs you grew up and kind of held close. And it wrecked people. I remember this one girl in our New Testament theology class. He decided rather than looking at the harmony of the four gospels, let's look at everything that doesn't add up and all the contradictions. And how do we hold this together? And every class, this one girl who would sit at the front was just left in tears because she didn't know what to make of it anymore. 
I love this aspect of it though, because I had already kind of gone through that deconstruction and left everything behind. And now I had come back to it with fresh eyes and I was wanting to learn this stuff. But you see, most students who were just starting off had moved out of, uh, for the first time. They, they were encountering this stuff. They were being challenged to think through it on their own. And the other unfortunate part is it's a liberal arts university and you're only required to take two religious studies courses. So the students would take their first two courses, a survey of the Old Testament, a survey of the New Testament, possibly intro to theology. But those were the courses that all this deconstruction would happen. And then they would go off and focus on their other studies and business and teaching and meds and they, they were left at this place where everything's been picked apart, but they weren't given the tools yet to put it back together, to reconstruct, to rebuild. And unfortunately, I know several students who could no longer reconcile their deconstructed worldview and their Christian faith, and they didn't know what to do about it, so they left the faith altogether, and they, they just kind of felt alone and lost. And I share this with you because tonight, wherever you find yourself, whether it's in this season of deconstruction, reconstruction, simply staying faithful to what you've always taught and believed to know is true, I want you to know it's okay. I know it's scary. I've been there. I know it's scary to even be walking alongside others who are going through this season in their life. But I want you to know that God is bigger than all of our fears and our doubts. And he is willing and ready to meet you right where you are. So know that you're not alone. Wherever you find yourself, know that you're among friends on this journey. But you see, deconstruction and working through what you believe and asking the hard questions can't be the end of the journey. Because if you rip it all apart then what are you left with? The journey is, is growing in our relationship with God and understanding how God's created the world and how he's created you and I. And so tonight, I want to invite you to explore with me steps to spiritual renewal, steps to reconstruction, steps to rebuilding our relationship with God. Because you see, up until this point, we've been following the adventure of Nehemiah as God has used him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he brings the people of God back together. And in our discussions and our messages so far, we've looked at first things first, making sure that God is number one in our life. He's our go-to. And we see that how Nehemiah's prayer life is actually what empowered him and enabled him to accomplish so much. Then we looked at coming together and how many hands make light work. And then dealing with discouragement and distractions and how we can stay focused and faithful to what God is calling us to and how our relationship with God, Jesus, is our ministry to the world. But now, as we saw last week, the wall is complete. They built it in 52 days. But just because the wall's complete, the job's not done. And this is what Nehemiah recognizes. And this is the shift that we're going to see in the text. Because although they've built the wall, it's now time to rebuild the community and restore their relationship with God. 
So there's a shift taking place in the book of Nehemiah that after the city, now the citizens. So buckle up because we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. We're going to fly a little bit higher like we've done in some previous chapters, but this time we're going to cover chapters 7, 8, and 9. And I promise we're not going to read every verse from it, but uh, sit tight because it's going to be a fun one. But I love the sequence of these chapters when they're held together, because as you'll see, Nehemiah cares deeply for his people, and he yearns for them to restore their relationship with God. And when we hold these chapters together, we're going to see and even be able to follow their blueprint and their steps towards spiritual renewal. They were in this place where they had just been scattered and spread out everywhere, and now they're just coming back trying to make sense of what does this all mean now? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. Again, don't feel bad if it's on your phone. No judgment. We trust you're on your Bible. Uh, I'll also have the, the scripture behind me too as we go through some of the verses. So the wall of Jerusalem has just been rebuilt and Nehemiah is now calling people back home. So chapter 7, starting in verse 4. The city was large and spacious, for there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. And one thing I love about Nehemiah is his deep sense of the presence of God. There's that line, then my God put it into my mind. He has this great awareness of God's presence in his life. And what he knows God is calling him to now is to get his people together and rightly oriented to remind them of their inheritance and their calling. So later on in chapter 7, from about verses 7 down to 65, a long one, contains a long list of names, and we're not going to read through them. But what Nehemiah is doing through this list is he's connecting and reminding the people of the city's continuity with the past. He's connecting them to this meta-narrative, to this overarching narrative of God at work from the beginning. And he's saying that you, we are all part of this story that has happened and started so long before us. He's saying, look at our history, look at your heritage. You are part of this story that's been going on long before you or I entered the scene. And the same is true for us today that we have a heritage, people who've gone before us, that we need to remember. So the first step towards spiritual renewal is acknowledge your past. Now, I'll admit that this isn't easy. While there are many good things that we can be thankful for, we also have to acknowledge the many offenses that those who've gone before us have committed. They weren't perfect. They didn't always get it right. We're not perfect. 
and we're not always going to get it right. But I believe we can learn from the past and do better. I shared this quote a few weeks ago by Donna Petter, and she writes, we as Christians have a responsibility in our own particular cultural context to identify and weep with the aftermaths of the sins of our ancestors because a posture of humility will prevent us in turn from smugness, arrogance, and defensiveness when confronted with our own corporate past. So how does this help us move forward towards spiritual renewal? Well, we have to acknowledge our past so we can learn from it, so we can repent of it, and that so we can move closer to Jesus. If we simply ignore it, we may end up doing the same harm. So Nehemiah has just rebuilt the city, and he's reminding people of their history so that they don't find themselves in the same place again. They just had to put it back together. They had been in exile, oppressed, disgraced, and their city in ruins. So he's saying, remember the continuity of God's faithfulness and God's goodness, but also our shortcomings and where we messed up. So like I said, it's not easy. It's going to be challenging. Take heart. It's going to take hard work. But it's work that Nehemiah shows us is worth it. Because as we acknowledge our past, and can I even dare say be thankful for it, I believe it will allow us to step into our calling here and now, what God wants us to do now, how he wants us to progress and move things forward. And as we'll see, even though Israel's past is filled with many, ups and downs, looking at the past also reminds us of God's faithfulness through it all. So now let's jump to the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 where we're going to find our second step to spiritual renewal. And it says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra, who has his own book of the Bible right before Nehemiah, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Pay attention to that word because it's going to come up a few times. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and all those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So now jump down to verse 8. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So there's a few things happening here and throughout this chapter that will help move us towards spiritual renewal. 
And it can be summarized in our second step, which is prioritize God's word. First, they came back and they prioritized scripture. The people had been scattered and exiled and they hadn't come together and worship in years, but now they came back together and they longed to worship together and hear the law of Moses that the Lord had given them. They wanted to hear God's word. And then secondly, they wanted to understand scripture. We saw that throughout this passage. It wasn't merely about reading or hearing. It was about understanding the word of God. And to understand the word of God also means to stand under the word of God. To let the word of God transform you, speak to you, mold you. Pastor, professor, author, Daryl Johnson, out in Vancouver, BC, he has said this, when anyone stands under God's word, something happens. Not because of the condition of the person's heart, but because of the life-giving power of the word. The word itself, or himself, Jesus, softens hearts, deepens shallow hearts, integrates cluttered hearts, and flourishes and receptive hearts. And you see, this is what happens to this community. We read that they began weeping and grieving and mourning. As they stood under the word of God, what was happening is that they were actually being convicted of where they had gone. They recognized that how they had participated in the disruption of the peace and harmony that God desires for the world. And in turn, it was breaking their heart. But then they're told, this day is holy. Don't mourn or weep. Don't grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, they're not saying that we can't or shouldn't grieve and lament. I actually believe we need to create more space for that within our churches. But I believe what they're saying, at, is saying here in this context is they're saying to weep and to grieve would be missing out on what God's actually doing. Because God is actually restoring the relationship with you. He's softening your hearts. He's transforming you. And it's good. It's very good. And it's something to celebrate and take joy and delight in. I'm sure I've shared this story before where I had this transformational experience where I went into my pastor's office growing up and had been dating his daughter for several years and I was livid over certain things that had happened. And I just started screaming at him. And he was a pretty terrifying person, so I'm surprised I did this. And I just remember him sitting me down and say, Kev, let's talk about this. And as I sat down with him, he's like, where's this coming from? And I just started weeping. I started sharing all this stuff that I had hidden in my past and that I hadn't confessed to anyone and I was just doing it on my own and living this complete double life than what I had portrayed in the church. And I thought he was going to kill me at one point, but he just opened his arms and hugged me. And he said, God is working in your heart and in your life. And I see it. I see God's hand of grace upon you. And that forever changed me as to what grace is. 
And this is what these priests are getting at here. They're saying, you don't need to mourn. You don't need to weep right now. This is a time to actually celebrate and rejoice because God is at work in your hearts. It's something to celebrate and take joy and delight in. And it even reminds me a little bit with my experiences of communion growing up. It's a time when we remember the sacrifice of Jesus and his death on the cross, and we take it seriously as we should. But we also forget that it gives us freedom and life and a restored relationship with God. It's a time where we can become present to his presence, that his body was given for you and his blood created a new covenant of love for you. And growing up, I just remember it was always this somber time. And then we would hold hands after communion and we'd sing, I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. But we'd be like, I'm so glad I'm... It's like, really? Are you glad? Yes, it's a time to take seriously and remember and allow the Holy Spirit to convict us. But it's also a time to remember and celebrate and confess that Jesus is Lord and he is good. And this is exactly what happens as we shift into chapter nine, because following their prolonged heart searching and conviction of sin, chapter nine shifts to a national confession, which is our third step towards spiritual renewal. It's to confess your sin to God, but also to confess who God is. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 say, Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. In other words, this was a six-hour worship service. They did three hours of, of reading, and then three hours of confession and worship. So get cozy. We've got five more hours to go. <laughs> but what's interesting here is that their confession is twofold. They confess their sin. They confess the sin of their, their fathers, but they also confess who God is in this chapter. So first, they're convicted about their, their own sins and the sins of their forefathers, that they violated the covenant, which has become evident in the reading of the law that they've stood under for the past several weeks. But in confessing their sins and their participation in the disruption of the peace and harmony that God desires for the world, they're also confessing God's glory and grace. So the prayer breaks down into four parts in chapter 9. And the first is verses 6 to 15, which has a focus of, on God as creator and savior. The prayer starts in the second half of verse 5, which we read in our call to worship. And it says, Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens, with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. It starts with worship. And again, this can be attributed to the scripture readings that they've been standing under. They have been influenced and transformed by God's word. And then the second part of their prayer is in verses 16 to 25, and it focuses on the generous and patient God. 
in verses 16 and 17. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. And oh, how easy it is to forget. How often do we do this? God provides for us, and then we just kind of get going on with life, and we forget, and we begin doing things in our own strength again. But despite their sins, verses 19 to 21 says, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And then in the third part of their prayer, verses 26 to 31, the focus is on the God who warns and disciplines. Verse 30 says, You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. And finally, in the fourth part of this prayer, verses 32 to 37, they confess that doing things their way has led them to slavery. Verse 36, here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness but here we are, slaves in it. And how true is that? We think that doing things our own way will give us this life of freedom. And suddenly we realize we're in bondage. We're slaves. We're not free at all. So where does this leave us? Where do we go from here? Well, I believe that through the graciousness of God and through the person and love of Jesus Christ, he has made it possible for us to be restored back into a relationship with him. I believe that this text that Nehemiah gives us is an invitation to trust, to trust that God is at work, to trust in God's goodness and his faithfulness, to trust that he is present with us and he always has been and he always will be but we have to acknowledge our past, prioritize and stand under God's word, confess our sins and who God is. And I promise you that this will set you free by taking these steps to spiritual renewal, wherever you're at in your journey, this will set you free. So next week, we're gonna be wrapping up our series that's been going through the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be talking about making investments that last. And we're going to be celebrating too with the clerks, dedicating their twins, Charlie and Will. But I want us to take a moment now to listen to God and reflect on what's been said as we prepare our hearts for communion. So let's take about 30 seconds and ask God, to speak to you.